<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via webcam, and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, The Inflammation Spectrum, Ketotarian. My brand new book, Gut Feelings, is for pre-order right now. You can learn about all the books, my telehealth center, becoming a patient. There's lots of free resources there for you as well at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. Com. And listeners of The Art of Being Well, I'm giving away free signed books of your choice. All you have to do is head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Art of Being Well there. Tell us what you love about the show. And every month, no matter when you listen to this episode, my team and I will be randomly picking winners every month. And I'll reach out to you and I'll ask which book you want me to sign and we'll send it out to you. So you can do it two different ways. You can leave your Instagram handle in the Apple Podcast Review itself, or you can screenshot your Apple Podcast Review and message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. And every month, my team and I will be going through the messages on Instagram and the Apple Podcast Reviews themselves and picking winners every single month. Good luck. All right, let's get to today's guest. He is a dear friend of mine, brilliant colleague and physician. His name is Dr. Will Sue. Will Sue, MD, completed medical training at UCLA and a doctorate in immunology at the University of Oxford. He completed his psychiatric training at Harvard Medical School, where he was on faculty for years. His interest in psychedelics as healing tools began there in 2012. He has trained with MAPS in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and has been practicing with ketamine since 2017. His work as a public educator has been featured in outlets including The Goop Lab on Netflix, HBO, and The Wall Street Journal. Will is co-principal investigator on a pilot research study exploring MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of fibromyalgia. He trains psychiatrists and psychologists in the use of psychedelics and is an advisor to a number of companies in the wellness space. And 
He is an amazing human being. I freaking love him. Let's get right to it. This is Dr. Will Sue's Art of Being Well. Dr. Will Sue, my friend. <laughs> it takes it takes a podcast recording to catch up sometimes with the French. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for taking the time out and talking with me. Yeah, it's always fun to, to chat with you. Every yeah. single time, new things, and it's, it's always fun. Yeah, it definitely is. So let's start, let's dig right in, just frame the conversation, I think, and then we'll get really deep and go there. But let's <laughs> let's define psychedelics for people that are maybe newer to the conversation. People know the phrase, but let's just start there just to give context. What constitutes a psychedelic? Great. Yeah, and I would say even, you know, newer people that are getting into this, one thing that's happening right now is there's just so much information out there now of mm -hmm. psychedelics. And honestly, my core definition for them and I've seen it used more thankfully now, I think is is the most helpful one for an individual which is that psychedelics are non-specific amplifiers of the unconscious. And this is a definition that came from sort of the psychedelic psychiatrist godfather, Stan Groff, who's still alive, but he's, he's getting up there. But I love that definition because it's, you know, again, non-specific amplifier of the unconscious. So it honors we have an unconscious, which this day and age is not something controversial. Mm -hmm. And it says that there's stuff under there. Mm -hmm. And that these molecules will give us access to that. And that's it, right? That leaves open that molecules are going to do it differently. You know, what comes up is different depending who we're around, what can mm -hmm. come up is different depending what you know, time of life we take it. Mm -hmm. it. You know, something different can come up. So I like that because it's honoring this piece that's very, very important that the experience that we have is not the drug. It is the medication, the drug that is unlocking something already in us. Because then if we see it that way, if we see what comes up is of us, then I think when you're working with it yourself or with a practitioner, it just mm -hmm. gives you a different way to look at the experience that you have. Yeah, totally. And so that we're talking about unlocking something within us. What are the different tools? What are, Let's highlight the major psychedelics out there. And let's just start there. Let the people know. <laughs> sure. So the major ones out there, probably let me think about this. Like it's it may feel like it changes from time to time. Probably the thing that people are hearing about the most are psilocybin mushrooms and MDMA. Ayahuasca is probably a, a close third these days. And probably the less common ones are probably the toad 5-MeO-DMT. I imagine that's like the four that are mostly being talked about. I mean, then there's things like combo and other things, but I, those are less interesting. We, I don't think we need to talk about this today. But yeah, psilocybin mushrooms and MDMA, I think, have taken the forefront, especially people probably talking about and using psilocybin as microdoses has probably definitely been something in the last year, year and a half that I've seen. It almost mm -hmm. seems like who's not microdosing these days. And so... <laughs> Yeah, those would be the major categories. Got it. So do you see these as bio-individual tools where it depends on the person and the, and the case? Or do you, just having just a, a deep understanding of all, all these variables, do you have favorites of the psychedelics that you feel like really shines compared to the rest? Or does it depend on the person? I do, actually. And, you know, to say a little bit about that is that the word spiritual has become a weird one for me recently because it's, it's used a lot in the wellness community. I started realizing a few months ago, I don't even know what the heck people mean by it. 
But I bring up the word right now because most of us, and I imagine most people in your community, whether it's through religion or spirituality or some whatever else they want to call it, feel a, a connection to something greater. You know, feel that we probably come from something greater and that we go to something greater when we die, meaning whether we want to call that God, whatever. But we feel a connection to something. Mm-hmm. And so then I don't know. I do think that part of the human journey is for some people, I don't think it's a requirement to feel connected, to feel more connected to that place, to perhaps share their experiences with others. Again, for some people, I don't think it's for everybody. And then there's other people who are more working on the day-to-day here, working in relationships to people, creating things. You know, I think some people's primary thing in life is working through romantic relationships and, and figuring themselves out. So, so, I mean, everyone's journey is different. I happen to believe, if you think about most of the psychedelics, they have what I would call, especially at moderate to high dose, they open up what we call non-ordinary states. And by that, we mean things like, oh, some people experience their own death. They experience talking to an ancestor. They see a spirit animal that comes out and it converts to something else and it gives them a message. So that's what I would call the non-ordinary, or I would call things that are, again, connecting to that greater thing. So that's like a lot of what's making it out into the books and media, right? That makes for a very interesting story. Mm-hmm. But practically, you know, when I think when people come to me, or I would imagine when people come to you, they're not struggling directly to things of, say, ancestral trauma that happened two to three generations ago, like literal trauma, meaning like, oh, okay, like maybe I had a great grandfather that was murdered, blah, blah. Without going that line of thought, meaning most people are struggling with their day-to-day relationship. My partner, this, my child, this, my work, this, I don't feel fulfilled. Meaning most people in 2022 are struggling with their right now. Mm -hmm. So to me, when I first started my journey with psychedelics and healing about 10 years ago, I actually went to one of those heavy hitters that would throw me into this other non-ordinary state. And what I found over time is that it was interesting. It was like giving me insights. And I was like, wow, like very much wow. But after some time, I realized I'm still like struggling, feeling lonely, feeling disconnected. So I stopped kind of doing that. And then I started focusing on my interpersonal relationships. And in some ways, I started seeing that my taking these more powerful psychedelics and seeking them more frequently was actually Mm -hmm. escaping having to do the relationship thing in my day to day. Mm. And so Interestingly, the psychedelic that happens to be at the forefront, which was very purposely picked, is MDMA. And that was picked by Rick Doblin, who started the nonprofit called MAPS in 1986. And I think it was very purposely chosen, and I think beautifully chosen, because Mm -hmm. of all the psychedelics, MDMA is the least transpersonal. It's the least likely to give you a non-ordinary state. 99% of the time, it stays interpersonal. What happened to me in the past? Let me try to work through this really complex, painful relationship with my mom. It's, It's very much more in the here and now. And I think I find it interesting now, especially as I've done a lot of the interpersonal healing around family and relationships, et cetera. Now I'm opening up more to the transpersonal states, but like I almost see like MDMA being a way of kind of coming in and helping people in the day-to-day relationships. And, and that's to say, we, we need that, right? The world is yeah. getting more violent. We're not working with each other. The environment's getting destroyed. And again, like it, mm-hmm. to me, those relationships are our priority to be healing right now. Got it. It makes complete sense. If we're talking about scratching the surface and starting there, the average person that's listening to this probably should start with the interpersonal tools or consider that. We get asked on a regular basis 
I don't have a functional medicine doctor. If you're not one of my patients at the telehealth center, what are some direct-to-consumer labs that I can order on my own and learn about my wellness? Something that I've loved for years is Inside Tracker. To live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside your body. Inside Tracker takes a personalized approach to health and longevity from the most trusted and relevant source, your body. It's bioindividuality at its best. This Cyber Monday week, get $200 off Inside Tracker's ultimate plan and 34% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Go to insidetracker.com forward slash art of being well for my exclusive discount code. Inside Tracker was created by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT. Inside Tracker provides personalized health analysis and clear recommendations, plus an action plan on how to live healthier longer. They're going to give you the right supplements for your body, the right foods to focus on, and food plan for your body, and tons of other actionable advice based on your labs, based on your body. Inside Tracker can also calculate your biological age, the rate at which you're aging compared to your chronological age as well as ways to lower your biological age. So you can actually see how you're aging from the inside out and you can improve your biological age based on their advice. The thing I love most about Inside Tracker is that they give you these recommendations on things you can control to optimize your health, like food, supplements, workouts, other lifestyle choices. This special deal, get $200 off the ultimate plan or 34% off the rest of the Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash art of being well. That's insidetracker.com forward slash art of being well. Hi, I'm Shira Barlow, but you may know me as the food therapist. I'm so excited to announce Joe Media's first ever daily show, Good Instincts. If you've ever found it challenging to eat thoughtfully while juggling a busy schedule, then this show is for you. Instead of aiming to simply eat healthier, we'll focus on tips and mindset shifts that streamline the process. Because balance is key, and the less complicated, the better. Join me every Monday through Friday for bite-sized episodes designed to help you close the gap between where you are right now and where you want to go. Available wherever you get your podcasts. For people that are unaware of what the scientific literature is showing and what we're talking about here, what's some of the data pointing to for psychedelics role in different health problems, brain health issues, and also many of our listeners are struggling with different inflammatory problems too. So I'd be curious on your thoughts on that as well. Yeah. I mean, there isn't a, a large amount of the multi-center trials. There's a handful. So as I mentioned, MAPS is sort of leagues ahead, or leagues really a couple years ahead of, of the next closest, which would be a, a study with psilocybin. But the MAPS data so far, they looked at MDMA for severe treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's about a four-month treatment process where everyone has to come off of their meds. And so you have, again, the worst of the worst of PTSD coming off their meds. They get weekly therapy normal one-hour therapy. And then three times during that four months, they get one dose of MDMA. And in those trials, which is now at phase three trials, which is the first time a psychedelic has ever been in a phase three trial, it's shown about 70% of people no longer have PTSD. And that even one year later, not only does that percentage hold, 
there is even more improvement after one year, not including more treatment with MDMA, meaning people immediately get better. And then the hypothesis is they start making changes in their everyday lives. They start, you know, spending more time with people that really fulfill them. They start saying no to things that don't fulfill them and people get better. So that is the most solid data that we have. We have some smaller studies that have popped up with MDMA, like MDMA for couples therapy, MDMA for anxiety, but that MDMA for PTSD study is like the gold right now. And the first half of the phase three trial was already done and published. And that made huge news. I think it was about a year or two ago. And MAPS is about to finish collecting all of the data for phase three by, I think, by October 1, which is a big deal, meaning basically by then they'll know they have the data to sort of change the legal structure of, of MDMA, meaning right now it's considered illegal and not medical usable. If all goes well, you know, the FDA in about one year will, will say it's prescribable, which is a huge milestone. Next after that would be the data with psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. And I want to make that distinction. So psilocybin is a molecule within magic mushrooms, meaning there's a pharmaceutical company that isolated psilocybin and has been doing a large study on major depressive disorder, treatment resistant depression specifically, a little bit different. And they've been showing solid data also that it works. I don't know if they're in phase three yet, but they're right on the cusp of starting phase three if they haven't started it already. And they've also been seeing very good data. It's not as good as the MAPS data, but it is very solid. It's, I don't know, I think it's like something like 55, 60%, which again, these numbers, 50, 60, 70% for psychiatry is tremendous. Like before this, we had numbers like 25, 30% at best for treatment with antidepressants, SSRIs. So mm-hmm. those are the two big studies. Other than that, there's these like smaller things that kind of hint at things being useful for, say, eating disorders or OCD, but they're very small studies. Right. But I would say that, you know, as you and I have talked many times, these get at the root of the issue. So I think the only thing required is time and then practitioners Mm -hmm. that know how to do the therapy work to just test out these other indications. It's going to work for most other indications. Right. And I've heard it said, and just looking at the mechanisms that are being explored so far, and like you said, more and more studies hopefully will be coming out. But it makes sense to me when I hear experts like yourself talk and looking at the studies myself as how it really is modulating the nervous system, modulating the immune system and inflammation in a way, almost like a reset for a lack of better words. Do you see it like that too? With I mean, no, we're not talking about um, studies, but just your experience of what you see. I don't know if I would call it resetting the nervous system. One of the things I think that ails us in the Western world is treating the mind-body as if they're separate. Mm. Right. And I was talking to a friend of mine, Gabor Mate, recently, who's an expert and an author. And I said to him, mind body connection. And he's like, Will, you're starting off wrong there. He's like, by even saying the mind body connection, you are saying that there's a separation. He he prefers the the phrase body mind unity. Mm. And so I thought about that in response to what you were saying, because that's one thing that it's interesting. So science has certainly now jumped on, and, and academic hospitals have gotten into psychedelic research. It's just like they resisted it for a long time. And I think because of all the press, we're now like, oh God, we got to get in on this. So we're seeing more brain imaging. We're seeing imaging that's claiming that there's like new neuronal connections. And to me, it's like interesting, you know, like, like meaning if, if I felt we had infinite resources Mm -hmm. and infinite time, tons of money that psychedelic researchers were getting and that, you know, we weren't destroying the environment and school shootings are only getting more frequent and then cool, let's do the science. 
Right. But but the reality is, I've now myself in the last ten years seen tremendous change in my personal life, my my internal life. I've seen that for other people, and I don't know. People talk about the default mode network, say with MDMA. But and I often will will say this to people like I've never looked at my default mode network. I've never seen my patients' new neuronal growth. What I have seen is people sharing with me things that they've never shared with anybody else and felt safe doing that. Mm-hmm. What I have seen is people doing that and being terrified to do it and crying yeah. and feel better after. You know, what yeah. I have seen is people go through phases of months of sharing more and more about themselves, things that they felt ashamed about and working on it together. I've seen them then not feel ashamed of it anymore. And then they are able to embody themselves more out in the world. So for mm-hmm. me, that's my evidence. Yeah, and that's again, and if somebody at some point wants to look at the data and neuronal growth, yeah. sure. But even as a scientist, that's where like my history is like a, both a doctor, a medical doctor and a PhD in science is where I started seeing the BS of science. And I'm not calling it like meaning, meaningless. My, my issue is when we wait for science to try to yes. say, now it's time to do something. Right. That is, is a huge mistake. I think now it's equivalent to what we're seeing in politics, being like, oh, the politicians are going to take care of us. Right. And I think it's not so apparent in the medical world where like the medical doctors are playing some of the same games that the politicians are. So for anyone that needs the science, I mean, the most important science is we, we have two major studies in psychedelics. They are rock solid. They are showing it works. And most, most importantly, is that they don't show. And there are no studies that have ever shown mm-hmm. that psychedelics are addictive or dangerous. I think that's in particularly important because I think a lot of people just got that programming like you, I'm, yeah. you and I are around the same generation and in the 80s and the war on drugs. Yeah. Your brain in a frying pan. Like there is no, that, that was never, ever based on evidence. So, right. I mean, I'm right on the same page as you. A lot of what the conversations that I try to talk about on the podcast are conversations that I have with patients is the fact that mental health is not separate from physical health. It is the same. Mental health yeah. is physical health. And you're right. It's the, the, the mechanisms and pathways are secondary to helping people. Like yeah. I, I'm fascinated by that, what it could be doing on a physical level, but it's ultimately secondary to someone's life being positively transformed. And those people don't give a crap about randomized controlled trials. They just want yeah. some relief in their life. Yeah. I mean, I do again, intellectually, would it be interesting to see if there is new neuronal growth, et cetera? Sure. But even then, we don't know what the chicken and egg is. And most scientists will still say, oh, you gave someone psilocybin, it changed this brain connection, and then you felt better, right? But again, the body-mind unity, which Gabor likes to say, I would actually imagine it's more the other way. It's like people have released this like emotion, stored mm-hmm. energy, because I see it in front of myself. And their personality changes, the way they hold themselves changes. I see them the next week. They are different people. So I don't think I rewired a neuron... <laughs> in the 30 seconds or seven yeah. minutes, we focused on this old memory. I, I actually think it happens the other way around where, the, where they release this energetically, emotionally. And perhaps then there is a adjustment to the nervous system because of inflammation, right? Because mm-hmm. if we're in fight or flight over any of these stored emotions or memories, and all of a sudden we release some of that fight or flight, the body kind of like chills out and then we yeah. reset after. So you know, that to your average doctor scientist at a university, they'd, they'd think we're talking complete garbage, you know what I mean? <laughs> but it's like, science is interesting, but it's, I don't think we should limit it to... Yeah, to, I agree fully, 100% agree that. Do you know if you're getting enough magnesium? Because four out of five Americans are not. 
And that's a big problem because magnesium is involved in more than 600 biochemical reactions in your body. Today, I want to talk to you about the most common signs to look for that could indicate that you're magnesium deficient. Listen up. Listen carefully to the end because there is a special offer happening right now, and this could be exactly what you need. Here we go. Are you irritable or anxious? Take note of this, guys. Do you struggle with insomnia? Do you experience muscle cramps or muscle twitches? Do you have high blood pressure? Are you sometimes constipated? There are dozens of symptoms of magnesium deficiency. So these are just a few of the most common ones that I see with patients around the world. And then when I run magnesium RBC labs, I see magnesium deficiency all the time and people don't even know it. And it's so simple to fix. Now, here's what most people don't know. Taking just any magnesium supplement won't solve your problem because most supplements use the cheapest kinds that your body can't really absorb well or use. That's why I love Magnesium Breakthrough. It is a full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually use and absorb. Here comes the best part. This special offer is only available at magbreakthrough.com slash willcole. Visit magbreakthrough.com slash willcole, enter code willcole for 10% off any order. This is the best time to stock up on the products you love and try new ones as well. All BioOptimizer supplements are the best in class. If for some reason you feel differently, you can get a full refund, no questions asked. They are so confident that they offer a 365 money back guarantee. Hey, if you arrived here late and did miss a special offer, 10% off for my listeners with the code WillCole. Where do you see microdosing fitting into this? You mentioned like it's such such a popular term. Maybe define it for people that are unsure what constitutes microdosing. And then yeah. where do you see it fitting into as a healing modality? I love you're asking this question because it's probably the most common thing being done now is that people are microdosing. It's just available more. You know, on the surface, it feels safer, which it is, meaning it's less scary than taking a bag full of mushrooms or taking ayahuasca. And I actually think it has a tremendous potential. Right now, how it's happening is that people are using old protocols, like meaning there was this doctor who's still alive. His name's James Fadiman, who wrote an old book on microdosing. And he came up with what's called the Fadiman protocol, which is, or there's two protocols, I think, but at least one of them is take approximately 10% dose of mushroom. And I'm, no one write this down because this is not actually what I'd recommend to do, but I'm giving you the example. Take a 10% of a normal dose of mushrooms. So a normal full trip of mushrooms would be like two to three grams. So they say take about 0.2 grams to 0.3 grams. That should be considered a quote microdose and take it every three days. So, or take it one day, take two days off, take another day, and that should treat your depression. That's the way it's being marketed it out right there. Or the other version you commonly see is take it two days in a row, take two days off. And are there some people for who that's helping? Yeah, actually. You know, I've actually seen that help some people. But what I don't like about that is it's not giving any thought into why it's working. And also, it doesn't demonstrate who it's not working for, right? You're on social media. I'm on social media, right? People are happy to post stories of when things go well. Like, oh my God, microdosing, it just helped me so much. I But we're not seeing all the stories about I did microdosing and didn't do anything, or I did microdosing and I started getting more anxious. You know, people don't do that because they're, you know, again, they don't want to be like, God, it seems to be working for everyone else. Why isn't it helping me? So this is what I'm going to go back to 
that first definition and why it's so crucial to keep in mind with psychedelics always, non-specific amplifier of the unconscious. So if you take a 10% dose of anything, a psychedelic, you will open up the unconscious 10% compared to if you took the full dose. And therefore, you're able to work with it at that level. There's a certain dose, maybe 5%, where you may not even feel anything. So I wouldn't even think of the word microdosing. I would just think of, ta- oh, I'm taking more or less. Like, that, like you know what I mean? If I take, am I having one shot or <laughs> my barista throws in three shots? And, just, yeah. and then the most important thing is then what am I doing with it? And this, I haven't even seen anyone try to address that out there. Meaning mm-hmm. if at a full dose of mushrooms, we know we, we're going to need to be in a bed. We need someone supporting us. We're not going to be out driving. We're going to be full on in some type of powerful experience, say three grams of mushrooms, just for conversation's sake, no one go home and do that. And let's say at zero, that's our normal workday. But if we want somewhere in between, like we can sort of play and explore how much that would be. But a classic example of how I think it could be worked with much more intentionally and powerfully, right? Because, you know, kind of what we were saying earlier, I was giving you examples of me connecting with patients, creating a trusting environment. They tell me about things that really have caused them pain or shame and they cry, right? That's the most common thing. Are they catharsis by shaking or other things? And basically, we're trying to recreate safe environments. Mm-hmm. with two people in the room. It's that simple, right? Cuz like right. when mom, dad at school, when when we, you know, continued to hold these old traumas, we usually went through them alone. So we're when I think about working on my patients, we're trying to basically recreate this safe place. Mm-hmm. Sometimes with some people, especially with men, I think it, I could definitely say it's, it's more with men, but certainly still with women, that even the most safe space I can create just with my presence. And I'm not talking about psychedelic work. It's still hard for them to get the emotions out, you know, with all the different tools and techniques that I use. Like one of my clients is coming up, like amazing man. He just had a very painful child and teenage life. And there was one session we were talking about the, the most, you know, painful thing that he could think of in his teens. And he started to well up in tears, but he couldn't let himself cry. And he wasn't actively resisting. His body had just been so programmed, just like mine and yours to some extent as men, mm-hmm. where like there was all these unconscious resistances to crying. Yeah. Now that would be a perfect patient to, you know, I could tell him or he could decide is the way I put it to come in to the next session, having microdosed an hour before, because it can open up, we can get to that same place. And that might might provide him enough assistance to just let him have the release. Yeah. And so that's the way I think microdosing can work super well Mm -hmm. and and a lot cheaper. You know, you don't have to go out and find a a shaman that's going to, I don't know what people are even charging now these days, but you don't know their training. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's not going to be overwhelming if you take the small amount. And if you learn to incorporate it more into your day-to-day life or week-to-week life mm-hmm. with situations that are potentially going to allow safety and catharsis like therapy, or some people who have a very deep yoga practice, I will say, oh, you could try microdosing and do yoga. Or if you know, meditation is your thing, you could do some microdosing and meditation. One that I've actually shared with people, and I used to be able to say no one tried it, actually, but people are trying it now, is like, say, with a partner. If you and your partner are having some difficulties or even just not even difficulties that want to get more connected, you could say, okay, every Sunday night, we're going to get together for two hours, no phones, mm-hmm. no small talk. We're just going to talk mm-hmm. about you know, what's, what's coming up for you, what's coming up for me, and say, every couple of weeks, we do that with a microdose. Got it. You know, so, so it's more building... In, yeah. Can, can we create situations where there's potential for more deep, authentic connection? Right. 
And aside from that, because that alone might be able to be very helpful and effective and beautiful. And if we want to add to that, we add microdosing, boom. To enhance that connection. But it's different than just saying, oh, take it every two days, right? That's more of an old sloppy medical model where it's just like, oh, it's the drug doing it. Again, that's why there's, for some percentage of people, they feel better, but there's a a lot of people out there who are not feeling better with microdosing. So that's the way I've been meaning to write an article about microdosing that we're talking about. I totally get it. And it's it's (laughs) off of something that you taught me years ago. I've heard people discuss it within the space is set and setting. And that's what you're saying, right? Right. Yeah. It's, it's mind and setting versus just, just take this as prescriptive. Whereas yeah. what are you doing with that opportunity? Exactly. That's what I would say is, is what is this opportunity? And that's, yeah, what we're seeing in the wellness world in general. I think, yeah, we are both seeing that it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's just some people are being less intentional, I think just about right. the way they, right. They're they missing that, that opening yeah. or that, like the amplification of the unconscious. Yeah. And that's so, the thing. And so that's why I like this psychedelics, you know, and especially in the well-intentioned wellness world is just another beautiful tool to have in your pocket. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And you go to it sometimes, sometimes not, but it's not this magic fix all pill that's mm-hmm. being, you know, that there's, there's less of that messaging out there, but a lot of it's still out there that, oh, like psychedelics, you know, got rid of all of my depression, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, the messaging's getting a little bit better. Good. Something that I didn't hear you mention at the top of the conversation, I'm curious to know your thoughts about it now is ketamine. What are your thoughts on ketamine? Have they changed over the past years? I mean, it's certainly changed over the last years. I mean, in 2017, I was using it relatively regularly. Then I started using it less and less because I found that it wasn't really providing lasting change in people. And, you know, I think you've, you've kind of gotten to know me to I'm a very, <laughs> I just really love, I enjoy, my passion is working at the root level with people. Like one of my psychic mediums that I work with, she says, you know, well, you could work and heal with anyone. She's like, but what really makes you feel alive is working with people that come at you at the soul level. And I think that's something that always stayed with me when she said that, because that's what gets me excited. People who are just like, I get this life thing. I see it's precious. I like, mm-hmm. there's something blocking it. Like, that's where mm-hmm. I'm like, I'll step right in. Let's do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, so me and ketamine has never been that one that can get people through that block. And the reason why is that ketamine is a dissociative, right? So ketamine by nature, it's, it's an anesthetic. That's the first use. So meaning anesthetic. So at high doses, I can inject you with 50 milligrams of ketamine right now. And within three minutes, I could be cutting you open and you won't feel a thing. It's like a very powerful anesthetic. And the reason why I say that and share that with your listeners is because the reason why you can cut somebody is because they don't feel. They are dissociated. But if we're saying part of what is ailing Western culture is dissociation from the body and emotions, Mm -hmm. ketamine is the ultimate dissociator. So it's got specific uses of when it can be very good. I mean, the other thing is it's the only legal one right now. So there is this limitation. I think in the end, like maybe once every three months, there's a specific case where ketamine can work. So if someone is very depressed and or suicidal, that's where a high dose of ketamine, you do see a difference there. And there's a uniqueness there that is different than MDMA than psilocybin. Ketamine has, I mean, it's an amazing medicine for a very specific group of people. The other thing about ketamine is it's not really harmful. It's not like a really difficult LSD or ayahuasca trip where you can feel a lot worse later. Ketamine's kind of like worst case scenario. You're kind of like, yeah, it didn't really do anything for me. So meaning it's it's a pretty safe one. Yeah. I just don't see these like deep transformative Got things. It. And so 
But there are people now, and this is where the practitioner comes in, that are using low doses of ketamine or what would be considered low doses, where you dissociate a little bit, but you stay connected to the body. Now, people who are doing that are seeing cathartic experiences, but I I can't even fill one hand with the number of people who are doing that because it just takes the type of practitioner that knows how to do that. Mm -hmm. And those two practitioners that I'm mentioning, they're they're just both teachers to me and they're both amazing. They also do that same thing with weed. They live in Denver where this stuff is decriminalized and same thing. Actually, even smoking weed and doing a therapy session makes it a very somatic experience. Ketamine in theory at low doses can do that, but that's not the way the ketamine clinics Mm -hmm. are really functioning right now. Got it. So we talked about the interpersonal a little bit. I'd like to talk now about the the transpersonal, like you mentioned, and even yeah. like you mentioned the intergenerational trauma. What have you seen and what have you heard of with that healing generational trauma very, very much interests me? Gosh, no, I'm just smiling because it's been something that's popped up more in my last two weeks, especially. Um, well, you've got like the, I would say the more obvious intergenerational trauma, meaning like observable behaviors and coping strategies that get mimicked by children, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning like alcoholism would probably be an easy one where alcoholic parents at dinner table, kids as they're growing up, watch parents drink, those become kids in their teens that drink. So it's repetitive. Mm -hmm. I've also seen and heard about it in OCD because OCD is often in psychiatry labeled as a genetic disease. I think that's complete bullshit. I mean, the the genetic correlation is something like under half a percent. It's something ridiculous. Where I'm like, to me, it always made sense. I'm like, if there's a little kid watching their stressed out parent and the parent is like organizing the shit out of the house, as the kid gets older, the kid starts doing that too. That, I mean, I've just met patients who describe that to me. (laughs) Like, it's just Mm -hmm. like they remember doing it and then they remember themselves Mm -hmm. doing it for the first time. So that's like, one can call that, and I think that's real intergenerational trauma that is, yeah, very clear. Or the other one would be how do parents handle conflict, right? When my parents have conflict, they didn't speak to each other for three days. They live in the house together and just pretend they're strangers and then just end up talking one day, but don't ever resolve the conflict, right? That's how kids would then learn how to, oh, this is how conflict is dealt with. And they they become teens and blah, blah, blah. So Mm -hmm. that's, again, I think there's a learned behavioral trauma. That's very real. Like, and I'm not trying to understate that meaning sometimes Mm -hmm. with patients who I know that have like the knowledge history, that literal way that they are struggling with their current romantic partner, like started at least with great grandfather. It's, it's uncanny actually. Sometimes when you trace it back and you're just like, Jesus, this thing has gone back and back and back. So that's one area. The other area, which, you know, the one I was laughing about that I've gotten into in the last not just two weeks, but I would say two years is more the spiritual stuff, the ancestral stuff. That's like, what I want to hear about. <laughs> I, I, I want to get to the soul level with my friend yeah. right now. So what, what are you seeing? It's cool. I, oh, it's great because it's interesting. Like I, I noticed myself get a little bit self-conscious because I'm like, I don't know if people are going to think I'm crazy. No, or no, no. Man, I want to go it, there. I don't, I don't care right. what people think. I don't think you're crazy. I want to hear yeah, but about it's also making stuff. It's like cool. It's cool because like more people are talking about this, which just is a signal that I think, yeah, people yes. are more curious about this. So yeah. um, this is just the beginning. I know this. Let's go there. What what are you seeing? My journey into like ancestral stuff started specifically in October of 2020. That was when our mutual friend, Elise Lunen, introduced me to a psychic medium named Carissa Schumacher, who you have maybe already heard of. She yeah, put out a the Yeshua wonderful book. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes- Channeling Yeshua that yeah. was released, I think, last fall. Before that, 10 years ago, I was atheist. Around 2020, I think definitely was, I was like, okay, astrology exists. There seems to be something to this, that pattern app. I don't know if you use I'm like, okay, this is like something's happening in here because people can predict things based on your birth time and place. I was like, okay, cool. But ancestor stuff hadn't ever entered my sphere. And then so Elise introduces me to Carissa and then everyone that's worked with Carissa talks about her first email. And so all of a sudden I'm just like normal day. And then I get this email, which is just one of those moments where like life before, life after. The first half of the email, I'll I'll just summarize by saying, I've never been so seen by another human being. Like she, just to my essence, like, yeah, (laughs) I'm very careful with my words. I'll leave that one at that. Like I've never been so seen by another. Dude. Yeah, I've heard that time and time again about her <laughs> specifically from Elise, from other people. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. the second half, it's great because it's Carissa and Elise told me ahead of time that, that Carissa doesn't channel the dead like as a party trick. Like there's no need; she doesn't do it. And then she starts the second half being like, and there's this male energy coming in. It's a need for me to share this. And then boom. And my father died in 2008. She had no idea what my father's name was. It it just started off saying it's a male energy. At first, I thought it was a Ken, but I think it's a Ben. My dad's name was Ben. And then literally two pages of like my dad. Like like I said, there was life before and after this experience. Yeah, wow. And I then I went to one of her retreats. And then I also had a one-on-one session with her. April 2021, which like all of it, I was literally thinking this week, I'm like, it's a relationship. You know, I don't know when I think about human relationships and evolution and the life journey, I'm like, we are here. Basically we evolve with other people. We choose what sometimes which people we are doing this with. Some people come into our lives, but like Carissa is one that's like the gift that keeps on giving. Like I keep now referring to like, Oh my God, something's happening right now from that April, 2021 conversation we had. And I'm just like, Oh, it's just like mind blowing. Anyway. So then this past week, I have a couple of friends that work with Iboga, which is this West African psychedelic, which most people haven't heard of, but the Bwiti who are the tradition that carry this in West Africa are very, very big into ancestors. It's in their everyday lives and believe and feel. And I've gotten to the point where I feel this is real too, that ancestors really exist. They are around us. You know, my dad is around me. I don't know if he still is, but he certainly was during that time. And, mm-hmm. and when I think about just if that exists, right? That there is these connections. It must be part of this human evolution thing, right? And, and certainly older cultures always had more of a connection with ancestors. And so then I started, I pick, picked up this book off my shelf, which I've had for about two years, but finally I felt like reading it. It's just called, it's not a well-known book, but Ancestral Ancestral Medicine for Personal and Family Healing. It looks great. And it's cool because this guy actually started out kind of like me, where he was just a guy who had no connection to this. And I would say a little different because I I'm one, I did my 23 and me, I'm one third Native American. So I've, I don't know, as during psychedelics experiences, I've always had, I'm like, this is coming for me. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. like, I know I'm going to connect to that. But this author brought up something interesting for him where he basically said his entire lineage is European. And I always think of Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and I put it in quotes. It was unfortunate, but Christianity was successful in quotes of getting rid of essentially mysticism and paganism, right? Because yeah. because like Europe was so small that right. they were actually able to kill all of the, the mystics, right? And, and, and destroy so, all the, the books exactly. as well. So I've always thought to myself, like, you know, like the white Westerner in a way, I feel some sympathy because there's been this like loss of what was a lot of history mm-hmm. of spirituality and mysticism, say, unlike some of my ancestors in Latin America, 
right? Like there was and still is indigenous that went far enough into the Amazon to where the Christians could not find them or went far enough into the Andes where they, you know, so that, that, that remained. But the reason I bring this up is because in this book, he actually talks about a guideline on how, if you want to actually learn to reconnect, this is how you do it. And he talks about his disconnection as this white Western man, mm-hmm. but then finding his roots back to these ancestral spirits of his own, which is really cool, kind of coming from a guy who was just like, I had no connection to begin with. So yeah, I think well, this last part I just think is is interesting. It'll be interesting to you. I think in particular, you have kids. I was talking to some friends of mine that this is like their jam. Like they've been into this for years. And or last week I talked to them and they were like, yes, well, you're finally there. Because <laughs> they were like, they're thinking about having a child. And, you know, obviously it's one thing to be sitting here talking to you and being like, oh, we we may have ancestors around us right now who are trying to help us. And But this guy's also cool because he actually talks about, he's like, it's just like this world where some of those ancestors sisters want to help. And some of them are in pain and some of these spirit guides want to help and some of them are in pain. And it's actually a little bit scary, but reality is like, that makes perfect sense. So um, anyway, but I was talking to these friends and they're a couple, they're thinking about having a child. And in part in our conversation, they're like, you know, we're going to die at some point. And they're like, they started realizing that making children almost adds to their role after they die. They're like, we're basically creating, manifesting ourselves to be ancestors engaged still with the physical world by having children. <laughs> I just wow. thought like that, what, right? Like, yeah. I was just like, whoa. <laughs> like, so anyway, I thought just that made me, I mean, I'm still definitely of child age. I'm single if anyone in Will Cole, Will Cole <laughs> be my dating filter here. Right? No, but like, this is, man. That like, is crazy. <laughs> That's a crazy concept. Man, it's so, I mean, we're just scratching the surface of this stuff. <laughs> I mean, you brought up the, our ancestry and religion as, as a whole. And I have you heard of the, the pagan continuity hypothesis? Mm-hmm. Where basically, it's this hypothesis within academia looking at, that was historically controversial, but it's becoming more and more, okay. as with all of these things, less controversial yeah. and being substantiated with more data, that the ancient pagan cultures, ancient Greece, uh, all the way to India, but also like yeah. the Celt- Celtic cultures and in Egypt had in Greece, it was called the the Kikion, which is basically this psychedelic elixir, the psychedelic mm-hmm. sacrament, yes. Yes. and then was really passed through the paleo-Christian community early on where the real sacrament, the real, like even the last supper, what they did historically was use psychedelics in their sacrament mm-hmm. to and you look at the holy books, you look at the Bible, you look at the Old Testament and these visions and healing and all that's happening. Yeah. That's not happening in today's church. Yeah. But you think yeah. of the visions and healing that now research is showing psychedelics role in. Mm. I tend to feel like there's a lot of something there. Yeah. yeah I was talking to Gabor about this because I, sometimes I'm very optimistic and I feel excited and and I was also talking, talking to Rick Goblin, like just both of them are teachers and mentors. So I often run like my bigger questions off of them. And I was just kind of like, okay, we all agree right now, shit's going in a bad direction, more violence, more destruction of the environment. And we're all talking about switching that. But I'm like, what are measures? What are things that we're going to be able to see? Be like, okay, cool. We're actually on the right track. You know, it's probably, in a, if that happens, that'll be in 10, 20 years. But I was like, are we even going to be able to notice that at the individual level? What are signs that we're actually moving in that direction? Mm-hmm. Rick at the time didn't give me a good answer. I have my own answer, but Gabor had an interesting one where he he pointed out Bessel van der Kolk's book where he was just like, it's now become a perennial New York Times bestseller. He's like, that's at least showing that people are 
curious and exploring the body mind. And I was like, fair enough. Like, that's a great, that's a great point. That's not a plug for Bessel's book. I actually actually think the body keeps the score, right? But I would say, so if you're into this, Gabor is about to come out with his new book called um, The Wisdom of Trauma in September. And I think it is just, he's been working on it for 11 years and Gabor is a master. And uh, he is brilliant in this space. He's such a good writer too. Add that to your list. You know, whether it's this guy, this ancestral book, I mean, we're talking about it. Like Mm -hmm. I actually used to think like, oh my gosh, especially the white Westerner ever get back to that or just the Western world. And now I actually think that's a, that's a definite yes. Like I used to think, oh, we had to have those direct ancestors and lineages that are alive teaching us. And now I'm like, no, we don't. And and that's, what's exciting. And I'm like, I think this ultimately mm-hmm. that these connections, the meanings of these connections to, to the bigger things, we, we all have those inside of us by nature. Yeah. And I think it's like, whether it's with psychedelics or other things, it's how do we connect to it? So I, I feel very optimistic these days Me about um, where things are going. Me too. And you think what we're talking about here is seen throughout wellness. And I think it's people realizing on an intuitive soul level that how we're doing life is unsustainable. And I really feel like people are wanting to reconnect with our roots And if you're looking at since the fourth century, when you mentioned like the early church destroying all of these books and killing thousands and thousands of people over years, I think finally people are starting to realize that is not the way. And we can (laughs) can do a, I don't know, I don't know if the world itself will change, but I think pockets of people are awakening to our birthright. Yeah, Yeah. my friend, I could talk to you endless hours. (laughs) Where can people go? Oh, I have to have you back because there's so many questions I didn't get to. <laughs> but we'll have a part two soon enough, people. Just stay tuned. But we ran out of time. Where can people go to learn about your amazing work? Right now, it's just my Instagram, which is will.cu.md. I'm about doing a little revamp on my website to add some more ways to engage people. Just a website light revamp. Yeah. And I've got this really cool project with our friends at Goop that is being released in, in January, which I will definitely be sharing on social media. I've been excited about many, many things, but this one in particular, I'm I'm very excited to share with everybody. So that'll all be coming up. (laughs) Very cool. My friend, I love you. We'll see you next time. Likewise. All right. Well, peace. (laughs) Always great. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back every Monday and Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.